As the tech industry makes the world smaller, business gets bigger. As your company grows, HSBC has the ability to scale with you with a vast global network made up of local expertise. Search HSBC Tech Industry to contact your local specialist. Coming up on Equity, Lyft is growing and introducing self-driving cars. Blue Apron loses its CEO. A well-known VC takes a leave of absence and Bitcoin soars to new highs. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof, joined by my colleague, Matthew Lindley. Hello. Alex is off today, but we're joined by a special guest, Nagraj Kashyap, who's at Microsoft. He runs the venture group there. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Hello. So, uh, lots of news this week. Instead of talking about... Uh, it's a four-letter word that starts with U. We'll talk about their competitor, Lyft, which is growing really fast, maybe because uh, their competitor had some issues this year. But uh, the information got a hold of some of their financials, and it looks like for the first half of the year, the company lost uh, less money. Um, they they uh, actually tripled in the first half of the year compared to the same year prior, and um, they're improving their margins dramatically so meanwhile uber actually their financials got a little worse the last quarter in fairness they didn't have a ceo but um <laughs> but, Always helps. but um but yeah i mean so it, it, it's good so specifically they brought in 483 million in revenue that's left for the first half of 2017 compared to about 150 million in the same time frame last year and um the losses were 283 million compared to 206 million the year before so way better margins they're losing now about they're losing now about a dollar 20 per ride they used to lose about four dollars per ride um but on uber part of the reason that their losses are accelerating um, they grew to 1.5 billion in the most recent quarter up from 1.06 billion in the year pro uh, the previous period and that's because uh, also because of uber eats so in fairness to lyft i mean in fairness to uber they have an added business beyond ride sharing that is eating up a lot of money um, so well i mean lyft, lyft is also only dealing with the u.s which is a much less complicated market market than international markets right i mean if, totally. if i mean if you look at like even if you look at like facebook the arpu for people in north america is always going to be way higher than the arpu internationally because they're just like these markets behave differently right and lyft is in the u.s and i think they're expanding into canada uh, now or in the near future or something like that so it's just it's a known quantity and so all you have to all you have to kind of do is just figure out how to spin up that marketing engine and obviously like take advantage of what's going on with uber right now H having said that yeah, i'm a power user i do a lot of rides and uh, over the last two years it's data point of one i keep asking the drivers do you do both and if i ask the question in 2016 typically people would always say i yeah. do both this year i see a number of drivers just telling me they're only doing lyft the customer experience is better. The it's better for both the riders and for them. So, you know, there's some truth to the fact they're in the U.S., but I think they're taking advantage of some of the troubles uh, Uber has. It's also great as a consumer for me to have choice. So I'm I'm glad to see uh, that there is actually a real choice and the fares are competitive and hopefully they keep keep like that. Well, I mean, Uber, Lyft also was to the tipping game way, way, way earlier than Uber, right? So I mean, clearly they positioned themselves very early on to be very driver friendly, and then it was just kind of like a 
was a volume issue, right? People just use Uber a lot. And now that Lyft is actually, I mean, it was always a thing, right? But it wasn't like a thing thing. And now that people are paying attention to it just because of, maybe it's because of Uber. Maybe their like marketing game is, is, uh, is a little bit better these days. But, uh, you know, it just, it seems like one of those things that was destined to happen at some point and then what's happening at uber just kind of accelerated it over time yeah and to be clear uh, lyft is still a much smaller business um the first half of the year uber's revenue is three billion and that compares to lyft's 483 million and uh, but as we discussed it's because uber is is big all over the world whereas lyft has been pretty much u.s focused so uh, they're but they're definitely a big rival here in the united states they're they're giving them a run for their money and they have a lot of money <laughs> uh Lyft, both both Lyft and Uber actually are raising some money right now. Uh, Lyft uh, has raised a bit of money from Alphabet, primar- primarily from Alphabet. So looks like they're going to be spending some of that on self-driving cars. I know you yeah. wrote a little bit about that. Well, they, they also didn't get chased out of China, which is <laughs> that that helps, right? Yeah, that um, definitely helps. Um, no, but they yeah, so they uh, they're starting their pilot with Newtonomy, right? Which is uh, they're starting they're sort of rolling out a pilot for self-driving cars in Boston, which is basically like you can hail a self-driving car from the Lyft app right which is you know it's not a it's not it doesn't strike me as super super fancy where you have Uber working on its own cars but the same working on its own self-driving cars but at the same time if you're Lyft and you're like yeah you just plug into me and like you get access to my network that actually I feel like that taking that kind of platform play makes a ton of sense because it makes it easier for Lyft to just kind of like hand off the challenge of actually building a self-driving car to potential partners like Newtonomy or something along those lines, right? Because, like, Uber, you know, (laughs) speaking of, like, spending all the money in the universe, like, you know, can spend a ton of money hiring engineers from CMU for, like, gajillions of dollars and try and build their own self-driving cars and also run into a ton of lawsuits and a million other things that could potentially go wrong with that. Or it could just be, like, you handle it and you can just insert your your uh your your api right here and we'll give you writers and then you can deal with this and that's not yeah. our problem <laughs> that seems like a much better approach especially when you look at the whole waymo lawsuit uh, between uber and uh, alphabet self-driving car division it sounds like lyft has the benefits of self-driving cars without a lot of the liabilities but um they're they're launching this in boston so now you can already uh take a self-driving car in in boston if you order a lift i don't know have you guys taken a self-driving car yet have you been in one i have done uh, demo rides i i for many startups i won't name them they were all um i felt very safe and uh, there was always somebody at the wheel though uh so there was uh, a bunch of things i did in south bay that i've taken rides on so it's great but uh, on coming back to the lift question one of the drivers was actually telling me something interesting which is he had heard that they would have the option of having the passengers take the take the ride in an autonomous uh, vehicle with paying nothing. So they're basically incentivizing uh, riders to try the service out. Uh, and I thought he, you know, even he thought it was very innovative. Mm-hmm. So that's a good way. And they also have some hindsight in terms of what not to do and not not to spend so much money that Uber is spending. So they have a different approach, but they also have raised less money and they have less money to spend. I mean, it's a data play too, right? Yeah. Like over time, you have to collect not only like the streetcar data, which again you can kind of hand that off to a partner, but like you need to understand the customer experience and whether they're okay with it, right? And if I mean, I'm sure the curve is like approaching the point where customers are more okay with someone not holding onto the wheel, right? I mean, you, you probably know this better yeah. than, than we do, right? No, it, it's true. I mean, it, it is getting to the point, but I mean, I think the the way Lyft seems to be approaching it is, is pretty interesting. I mean, they're incentivizing and people get more comfortable doing that and then then it becomes a regular, regular experience, yeah. 
So in other news, we've talked about Blue Apron a lot and kind of sad for their company, um, but their founder and CEO, Matt Salzberg, had to step aside. Well, I mean, they didn't say specifically that he had to, but given the stock price, I think that was clear. And uh, the CFO, Brad Dickerson, was promoted to take over to the CEO role. Uh, Matt is still going to be chairman of the board. But Blue Apron, as we've talked about at length, is that cooking kit delivery company, uh, which went public in June. And... The stock market, I think it's fair to say, hated them. Uh, their their stock is just, it's a really sad chart if you look at it. Uh, but it, so they, they went public at 10 in June, and that was way below the range and everything they were looking for. And they traded down to below $3, and that's when Matt stepped aside. But now they're at three seventy eight. so a little bit better. But it's still, it's still not good for the company that went public. And... Uh, Part of that was related to concerns about competition, customer retention, and all that. The stock market is definitely picky about companies' growth trajectories, and they seemed concerned that while Blue Apron very rapidly grew to a large business, they had a a pretty high top line, over $800 which is, is a lot for a young business, uh, there was concern that they couldn't keep up that momentum and that their margins weren't going to be great, that they'd have to spend more on marketing. I mean, yeah, the Pollock, the Alaskan Pollock was okay, I guess. But, um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's one of those things where I, it seems like people are, uh, they're paying more, att- or at least investors are paying more attention to the, the back half of the customer experience, right? So it's like, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're Blue Apron or you're Stitch Fix or, you know, even like other IPOs like Snap or something like that, and you can attract a lot of users really early on, the the question then becomes like, can you keep them? And like, can you do a good job of keeping them? Because you actually, you know, maybe I spend, uh, I'm like literally making this up. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe I spend 80 bucks to acquire a customer and I actualize that over the course of like three or four meals, right? Or three or four weeks. And I only get them for two. Well, then, like, yeah, my numbers look great in terms of the like the initial bookings, but I also screwed up because I didn't actually make the money that I needed to make off of those customers, right? So, I mean, I, I it just it just strikes me as like a you know, there's all there obviously seems like a lot of wariness in the IPO market right now, but the it's it's a metric that I think we we maybe didn't follow as closely as as we would have last year, right? Or we, we didn't follow as closely last year as we would have this year, but it's one of those things that it's like, as these new sort of next generation e-commerce businesses come out, like that's the thing that we're gonna be looking more like closely at. Have you invested in any anything similar? There's so many of these food delivery services. Are you in any anything along this? No, lines? I think it's fundamentally a tough business, and I don't understand it, so I don't invest in things I don't understand. So it's it's one thing where <laughs> as, that's as, a good strategy. Yeah, I think it's a good strategy. Also, my as Microsoft, look, we are an enterprise company, so we are sort of sort of focusing on more of where what our strengths are and how we can help startups. It's really hard for me to figure out how I can help a company like Blue Apron. So I typically invest in companies where, as I said, I understand the technology, and then we guess Microsoft can help them, which is mostly mostly enterprise companies. Do you think that the VCs uh, deserve some of the blame here? Because you're seeing other companies, it's not just Blue Apron, where they hit the stock market and it doesn't go well. They seemed shocked by it, but it seems to me that venture investors are evaluating, evaluating their companies on totally different metrics than what the stock market is. And while that's great for getting you to that stage, once you're on the stock market, if your business model doesn't fit what stock market investors are looking for, then it then it's really sad for a company that built something great in a short period of time to really falter. 
Well, I always think VCs are never at fault. Like I'm, 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 I'm one of them. But having said that, I think the you know you can look at both ways. Without VCs, many times these companies won't get a start. And so I think you have to give them credit for funding things at an earlier stage with a very risky model, which nobody else will fund. You can argue whether they took the, took them to market to, to public markets too early or you know not at the right time, but that's sort of uh, a really market timing and how much capital a company needs and how much more VCs can keep funding a company like that where you have lots of capital needs. So uh, again, as I said, I think we we are generally a good good group of folks and we have uh, the the heart of the entrepreneur at, you know and the good of the entrepreneur at heart. So sometimes things don't work out in public markets, but that's true of many many different companies also. I've had some VCs say that I should celebrate all IPOs, which as a journalist, I should not be doing. But I think is from their perspective that they are looking at the companies in the early days. And it's a huge win to obviously build in Blue Apron's case. They built a company in, in five years time that was ready. Well, sort like of, a, sort of billion ready revenue, to, yeah. Yeah, to, to go public. And uh, so, you know, to them, it, it looks phenomenal. And it's, it's great for the early investors, no matter what happens on the stock market. But as a journalist, we have to consider the stock market investors as well. And so they're trying to evaluate, is this going to, is there room for growth still? And so for some of these companies, the stock market didn't think so. And also they're evaluated on a quarterly basis. They're evaluated on growth trajectory and basically accelerating growth is something they want. Growing is not enough for the stock market. Your growth rate has to keep going. And VCs haven't always placed as much weight on that. It depends on the stage of VC, but the, it just seems like there's a big disconnect between the way private investors are, are evaluating companies and the way public investors are. Well, I mean, when you sit down, when you sit down with a company, um, and let's say it already has like, you know, five to ten employees or something like that, or maybe more, right? And we're saying, okay, like, you know, this is great for the entrepreneurs, this is great for the founders, but like, what about those employees, right? Because then at the end of the day, they're the ones that are kind of holding the, you know, holding the bag when these companies go public and they're the ones that have common stock instead of preferred shares and things like that, right? Like, you know, if there's a difference in, if there's kind of like a split in psychology between VC and, and, uh, and like the public markets, like, how do you like rectify that? I mean, if you look at Blue Apron, obviously it's sitting at like $3.78 a share, um, you know, maybe if I'm the founder, I, you know, I did fine. If I'm a VC, I did fine. But if I'm an employee, especially if I join like mid stage, like series B or series C, like this doesn't look that great to me. Right. So like, I mean, how do you, how do you kind of, you know, rectify that? Many times you can think of, uh, you know, VCs and whether it's employees or founders being generally aligned at every stage. So when you say the VCs and the founders uh, made out well. It's only the early VCs who made who made out well. If you come in late and the employee also comes in late, they're sort of aligned because you come in at a stage where company's already grown. You're paying up for the valuation. So if it's it's at three dollars, maybe somebody made money when they were the first money in. I don't know the, the economics here. I don't know the cap table. But you know, people who came in later to the round still funded the business. Likely didn't make money. So I think it is it is a function of risk reward at every stage of the company. And some VCs will take the risk early on. Some employees will take the risk early on. And same with the founders. If you come later on, which is sort of more stable as a company, and you know, it's at that point the risk is lower, but the reward might also be lower. So I, I think you, it, it's kind of hard to paint this a broad brush between a divergence and interest. I do think at every stage there is some amount of convergence. Mm -hmm. And so. Why do we think the CEO is leaving that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so... That's how we, that, that's how we got here, right? Right, so the CEO is leaving, obviously, because the stock is not doing well. Uh, sometimes 
and then the stock went up after he left. I mean, it only went up a little bit, but sometimes you have to do that for image reasons. Even though he's still involved with the company, for whatever reason, the stock market didn't think he was the guy. I mean, there were a lot of a lot of more specific issues, but it's it's a way to say, hey, we realized our approach wasn't working. We're going to do something different. We have someone here who's going to shake things up. He was the CFO. He understands finance, blah, blah, blah. So that's the message they're trying to send. But I, I can imagine that it's sad for Matt, who have met, you know, he was very passionate about the company and all that. Um, I'm sure he was not expecting this when they went public in June. So I think it is a warning sign that don't go public if you're not ready. Well, I mean, you you know, as a, as a VC and like, you know, as, as you know, reporters that cover startups, we do see this all the time where the CEO is replaced, you know, either on good terms or not so good terms or things are messy or things are really smooth. And, you know, it's basically like it's time for like a transition and, you know, either that you're hitting a growth stage or like the strategy is just not clicking for whatever reason. And it requires a sort of rethinking of these things. Right. But when you get to the public markets, like how important is that perception, you know, related, you know, say, you know, say I'm a CEO of a company that just went public and I'm ready to change my strategy because like clearly it's not working. Right. But does that mean I just like I still should step back anyway? And, you know, just to kind of, you know, publicly be like, no, OK, like, you know, clearly this is this wasn't working. So I'm going to hand it off to someone that knows what they're doing, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's definitely a tough decision. Um, I'm, you know, it's definitely a sad time for the early people in the company, and so they have to just send the message that they're making some sort of change. It's probably not enough to convince investors. I mean, as we saw, the stock went up, but not, not even close to their IPO price. But uh, you know, maybe next quarter they'll report better financials, and then and then things will change. But for now, the stock market has not been friendly to Blue Apron. But uh, changing topics here, we've had a lot of sexual harassment news lately. In case you've been living under a rock, not just in Silicon Valley, but you have people in media and entertainment and politicians that are losing their jobs. Uh, and so a well-known, very well-known figure out here in Silicon Valley, Shervin Pishavar, is taking a leave of absence at his company after a report in Bloomberg and now in Axios where there were... Uh, multiple women accusing him of, of various forms of sexual misconduct. To be clear, these are allegations, and TechCrunch doesn't have firsthand reports here, but uh, the stories were for sure enough for uh, Shervin to step aside, and he he said he had a statement about it. Uh, it you know, he's he was a co-founder of Hyperloop One. He was an early investor in Uber. We've talked to him about We've talked about him on the show before because he was heavily involved with Uber. Uh, he was also early in Airbnb, a lot of well-known Silicon Valley companies. So, um, but but yeah, I mean, you have women coming forward, and um, it's it's definitely it's been enough to for someone like that, a high-profile figure, to step aside. They have hundreds of millions of dollars in money under management. So I'm not sure what this is going to mean for the LPs. And um, he hasn't formally stepped down or anything, but he's he's not involved in the day-to-day, -day, it sounds like, at this point in time. So what do we make of all this? Well, I'm, I'm curious, like, are we, you know, are these still one-off cases or are we, like, at sea change status? So I think we're going to see more people for sure. I don't think this is over. I, but I think actually the next year is going to be a rough time where more and more people are going to 
gradually be found out and um, face some some very significant consequences. I think actually it's going to be a rough few years of there's going to be some discord still between some men and some women in the industry, not just this industry and a lot of industries. But ultimately, I think the next generation of women is going to have a better time in the workforce because of all this. Too many people, too many women in the workforce have experienced harassment, have experienced assault by people they work for, by people they're interviewing for jobs with. By, it, it's just unnecessary obstacles that women have had to face. And so uh, I'm fed up. So many women are fed up. Most women are fed up. I mean, when I talk to women privately, this is like all people are talking about these days because it's it's really been unfortunate. And I think for a while, most women and I think still most women are not speaking up about this, even though I've spoken up broadly about my own experiences. It's still scary to me, even given my job is sort of in the spotlight. It would still be scary for me to come out with specific allegations, rehashing instances with certain people certain pe people even if they were powerful they still have powerful friends there's still people that are going to evaluate you and and judge you you'd be labeled a liability other places might it may make it harder to get your next job it shouldn't make it harder to get your next job but I think that's what a lot of women fear is that they, the truth is a lot of the women or most women in the workforce want to still work. And if they come forward, they're afraid that it's going to be harder for them to work. But I think, you know, obviously there's been a huge cultural change and more and more women are coming forward because they feel like they're going to be believed. They're going to feel like their concerns are going to be taken seriously by enough people that it, it's more it's worth it to them and some of them just feel morally obligated to come forward even if it's not in their best interest also i mean as when you talk to early stage companies has this you know how has this become like really really obvious to them right now like uh, you know if, i mean i feel like when you look at companies like uber or you know even uh there are plenty of startups where the culture is like have kegs in the office right and just like you know party and like mostly like male engineers and the 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 way that things are set up it's just a it's kind of like the way things always have been but now i mean i'm curious like when you look at the early stage like are things starting to look a little bit different than than they used to even like a year ago or two years ago i don't have a good frame of reference in terms of whether things have changed dramatically i would say that um as an industry it has been a fairly systematic business failure on our part um that these things were used to happen. The one positive thing I'm seeing is that the actions are ta being taken really fast now. It isn't the case that this is being litigated uh, behind closed doors. It is really when things come out, then action is taken literally almost the next day or the, you know, the same time the same day, and which is actually a positive in, in recognizing that this is a serious problem. Uh, look, I, as what we can do uh, or what any individual can do is sort of make sure we are setting a good example. So when I came here two years back and I set up the the, the fund, we intentionally really made it a point uh, to look for really strong, diverse talent. And I'm actually very proud of the team that we have built because I think if you look at the composition of the team, we probably have the most diverse set of um, individuals in almost any VC firm uh, in an industry that, as you pointed out, is sort of being very male-dominated uh, in the past. So I think... You start with what you can do, which is sort of you have a team that then evaluates companies, and then hopefully that trickles down into good behavior all around. Uh, so I, I, so we 
No, there's a lot more to do. I think uh, what we have done is sort of set the example. I hope more people follow that. I am, as I said, encouraged that action is being taken very quickly. And I think that's sort of the first um, step in the right direction. What kind of policies does Microsoft have about this? Obviously, at a company that large, you're going to have some instances. How did they uh, evaluate this stuff and deal with it? We have lots and lots of good policies to make sure these things don't happen. I mean, as I said, I can comment about what I've built and my team. Uh, we not only have the policies, but, you know, we're speaking with, uh, with action. Uh, again, as I said, in an industry that is notoriously lack diversity, uh, we've got a set of investors that is highly, highly diverse. And, you know, we sort of did that. I think it's really good for business, and people don't realize that. And it's not only good for business, also avoids things like that happening today. So um, I think we've been proactive in doing that. Microsoft has been also leading the charge overall as a company. We all know we have to do a lot more. There's no doubt about it. So, but I think uh, we we want to act and sort of show the way. And uh, moving along here to Bitcoin, we <laughs> do you own any Bitcoin? <laughs> I should. I, I think uh, I'm getting flagged for not owning Bitcoin by my family, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's hit some new highs. It's at like fifteen thousand last I checked. By the time this records tomorrow, I'm sure it will be tripled. But yes, it's been doing really, really well lately, and um, and so now everyone who bought it early and by early, sometimes they just mean a few months ago. They, th- you know, people feel really smart about it. Um, I don't know if it's going to continue. Feel good story of the year. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I think it's hard to say. Like, is Bitcoin going to go up forever? I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to believe. I'm looking at this chart here. It is definitely oh, up into the right. <laughs> definitely up into the right. Make sure you put this chart, like, somewhere where people can see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, Bitcoin has done amazingly well. In case you've been living under a rock, uh, Bitcoin is that is a currency alternative. Uh, it is... Uh, it's been around for a while. It's it's actually had some rocky times a few years ago, but this year it's just been on a tear. It's uh, it, I mean the blockchain in general. A lot of people are are pretty bullish on cryptocurrency. We've seen all these ICOs, which we've talked about a little bit on the show, but those are initial coin offerings where a lot of startups are raising money uh, through or raising funding through the blockchain, but. It seems like right when Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan <laughs> said that he wasn't bullish on it, the Bitcoin enthusiasts proved him wrong. So uh, I think Lloyd Blankfein at, at Goldman Sachs was a little more friendly about it. But it's doing well right now, although I polled my Twitter followers and I said, which is more likely to crash next year, Bitcoin or the stock market? And, and Bitcoin is winning right now. I didn't give them the option of, of it not crashing, of n- neither crashing in fairness. But... I mean, it, I don't know. What do you think? Is this like a legitimate, is this officially a legitimate currency now? I mean, advocates will say it was, it's was. it been legitimate the whole time, but it was, it was fairly controversial for a while. I mean, are people still using it to buy things? Yeah. Where can you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know at least one, um, uh, so Wall who actually said they're not going to accept Bitcoin anymore because of the volatility. Now, I think it is legitimate in the sense my, as I said, my 12-year son basically asked me, uh, 
you told me about Bitcoin. You're supposedly a VC. You're supposedly an investor. And why haven't you bought this? And why didn't you buy it when it was like 20 bucks or something like that? Oh, so, wow. So, wow. So, Getting judged so, by your 12-year-old. Exactly, exactly. So that makes it legitimate that, you know, he can ask me that. So I think, uh, but, you know, I think for us, we are we are not Bitcoin investors. We do are bullish on, on blockchain and in enterprise security in, uh, ca- cases. There's lots of good use cases where I think we're seeing startups do I started to use blockchain, but yeah, I mean, I think with Bitcoin, I have uh, very little opinion because I'm not an expert, as I said already. Do you have an opinion of the other like 19 million coins there are out there? What is I can't even like, keep track Litecoin of Bitcoin. What do you think about ICOs? Got, exactly. <laughs> what do you think about ICOs? Exit before start? No, uh, I don't know. <laughs> 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 uh, no, I think uh, any way you can raise money to build your company is fine. I think it is buyer beware, clearly, and you're going to be very careful, especially on the other side. You talked about IPOs um, being, you know, with the, with the blue apron, you talked about how some of these things may be going too early. Well, with ICOs, that's sort of accelerated, you know, many, many times. So folks who are actually using this uh, to, to raise money is fine. But on the other side, it's actually to be really, really careful. I mean, so. when's the last time we saw something that this was this volatile? I mean, I guess aside from like, startups that what is it 90% of them fail right so I guess that but like not in our portfolio (laughs) but no I mean seriously like when's the last time we saw uh I'll begrudgingly call it a currency uh saw something like this this volatile (laughs) yeah I mean look whenever I mean whenever you introduce a new currency which doesn't happen very often uh um, there's going to be some volatility because people are trying to determine if it's if it's valid or if it's legitimate but Maybe now that Bitcoin's been d- around longer, people are more bullish on it, but there's always a risk. There's certainly a risk. And so it's hard to say now, are people buying on the low or are they buying on the high? So, I mean, it's definitely not the low low, but um, it, it's hard to say if, if it's going to keep going up, how much it will go up. It'll be interesting to see what happens. It's yeah. definitely been a huge story these last few months. I mean, the the blockchain is a fundamentally sound technology, right? It makes sense in a lot of applications, and we're going to see a lot of it. And I'm sure as an investor, you have tons of blockchain startups coming at you with all these different ideas, right? So it's like a Wild West. It's just interesting to see that, like, there's just been this insane creation of value over this idea for the time being. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure people, I'm sure some of our listeners have probably bought something with Bitcoin. I haven't, because again, I don't think we're allowed to own Bitcoin. <laughs> but um, but it's just crazy to see this like insane amount of value creation in just a short period, of, like short as in day, like days period of time, which is insane. But I don't know. Then again, like sometimes stocks move on and stuff like that. We cover that sometimes. So. Well, maybe by next <laughs> week's episode, we will be in a totally different place. But uh, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday.